Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. We've got a census-themed episode for you today. We're going to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine, about some secrets of the census. And then we will cover the latest happenings in the genealogy world with the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. In our top tips segment, we'll chat with David Frixell about his article, Everybody Counts, which appears in the May 2010 issue of the magazine and covers how the census has evolved through the years. In the 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, we'll get interactive with Justin Schrofer of Footnote.com as we talk about their new interactive census collection. In the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, editors Allison Stacy and Diane Haddad will be sharing some census secrets from their recent webinar by the same name. And finally, our in-house preservationist Grace Dobish will bring us another installment of Safekeeping. There is a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Well, it's time once again to check in at the editor's desk with Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Um, today's episode has a bit of a theme, and that theme is the census. I know that census day is April 1st, so what have you got for us along those lines? Well, Census Day is coming up. In fact, I just received my census form for 2010 in the mail last week, getting ready to fill that out. But obviously, this creates a lot of excitement for us genealogists who use this historical censuses on a regular basis, and they're so helpful for us in our family tree research. So in honor of Census Day and all of the excitement around the 2010 census, uh, Family Tree Magazine has released a brand new CD all about the census. Oh, terrific. Now, I know that you guys have covered that topic um, from different angles throughout the year. Is that what we're going to find here on the on the CD or some a compilation of some of those terrific articles? That's exactly right. We have um, lots of guides to using different census records. Of course, we focus on the federal censuses from 1790 to 1930, those ones that are publicly available. We also get into some special censuses of select populations, such as people who were in institutions or the Union veterans of the Civil War. In addition, we talk about those pre-1850 censuses that only name the head of household. Those are always a challenge. And even foreign censuses. So it really kind of covers the gamut of every kind of census research. That's terrific, because I know that there are, like you said, there are special censuses in addition to the population census. And we've had Kurt Witcher here on the show talking about that. And those are oftentimes overlooked. And I think that people sometimes underestimate the variety of information and types of schedules that there are in the U.S. federal census. And so this would be a terrific primer for us to kind of go back to basics and and look through all those different options and then really get some tips on how to use them. Now, you include worksheets as well, right? That's right. There's a variety of worksheets and cheat sheets. So we've got the extraction forms for all of the different census years, as well as some at-a-glance guides. For example, we've got state-by-state census fast facts. So that's 
things like what's the first census available for each individual state and what state censuses or territorial censuses are available. We've got Canadian censuses covered too, so those of you who are uh, up above the border there can um, definitely find some useful information here as well. Oh, I love those cheat sheets because sometimes it just it's a good quick reminder about what is and what is not available. So you're not, uh, you know, pounding your head against the wall trying to find something that actually doesn't exist. Exactly. That's a, a pretty common theme with new genealogists and, and even just folks who maybe haven't thought all the way through. You get so in your cycle of doing research and uh, why isn't grandma listed in the 1840 census? Well, you know, that particular census doesn't list all of the people who lived in all of the households. So if, if you don't keep those things in mind, then obviously it can trip you up. So it's, it's definitely good to have that quick reference to be able to guide your research. Now, I know you've been doing compilation CDs for a while now, but for many folks, this is kind of new technology. I mean, we, we've all been working with CDs, but what happens when we put a compilation CD like this in our computer drive what are we going to see? Does it does it really look just like the magazine? It really does. It's basically exact representation of the pages as they were printed in the magazine, only in electronic format. All of the articles or issues on the CDs come in PDF format, which I think most people are familiar with. But basically how that works is it's just you scroll through the pages, just like you would scroll through um, pages in the magazine, except you do it with your mouse instead of with your fingers. And there are bookmarks along the sides of an issue, or we have a start menu on the screen where you just open up that page and it provides links to each of the different articles on the various topics. So you can jump right to the thing that you're interested in. And the great thing about digital magazines is you get to do a uh, full text search. So it doesn't matter where the content is or when it was published. You can search all of that at once and be able to find the things that are most targeted to what you're looking for. A lot of folks um, will ask us about an index, and we publish an index in our issues every year. Well, when you put all of that material in electronic format, you don't even need an index because all you have to do is type in the word that you're looking for, and it'll instantly find exactly those words in every single article that they appear in. And that's so neat because I know how many times I have gone to look at the index and the topic that I have in mind isn't in the list. And I know it was in the magazine, but oftentimes it's just the, the keyword that, that we remember ourselves, the things that stood out to us. You know, it's so difficult to index something like that. But here, you, like you say, you could put those keywords in and pull it right out of the correct issue, the correct article, and have it out there for you. I mean, boy, that's just like searching the internet. It's a huge time saver. Even for us on staff, we often get questions from people who read the magazine wondering if we've covered this or that. And we think, okay, well, we know we did an article, but when was it? Well, we can go back and we can search these PDFs and be able to find it a lot quicker than paging through every single issue of the magazine. And we can download worksheets right off the CD as well, right? That's correct. Okay. And it doesn't require any special kind of software. Literally, I could buy this whether I have a Mac or a PC and put it in there and it would it would start right up? 
Right. Basically, all that happens is you need the free Adobe Reader, which is um, for PDF viewing, and most computers already have that installed. If not, you can just go to adobe.com and get it. Uh, we provide a link on the CDs to do that. But you pop in the CD, you click, double-click on that Start menu uh, that I mentioned earlier, and that will take you directly to all your links to the content on the CD. It's kind of neat to hear you talk about just the, the how-to of how to use the CD because this is fairly new to some folks and I really wanted you guys to know how simple and easy they are to use and you're getting that added feature of the search and the bookmarks and all the issues. So again, tell us the title of this CD that we're talking about. It's Census Secrets? It's Census Secrets and it's the latest uh, CD from Family Tree Magazine. You can find all of the CDs that we've produced so far on our shopfamilytree.com website. Well, thanks so much for covering uh, the Census Secrets CD for us. We're going to continue on our census theme on this episode. And I know we're going to be talking to you and Diane in just a few minutes uh, about some more tips. So we will talk to you then. All right. time for some news from the blogosphere with the genealogy insider and managing editor diane haddad hi diane hi well i think it's pretty obvious what we have to talk about it's what everybody is talking about and uh that's who do you think you are and i know that you've been talking about it on the genealogy insider blog um what are your thoughts on this new genealogy themed television show well it's so exciting to see people talking about genealogy yes I thought the show was great. It obviously didn't get into the the nitty-gritty details of research. Um, I think it told a great story. I think it showed genuine excitement um, about discovering your family's history. And that's, that's really what genealogy is all about. And I think that's the thing that is going to make a more general audience be attracted to this hobby. Exactly. I know in um, kind of reading the postings on Facebook, on various blogs and everything, there started to become a growing concern about, oh, they didn't show enough records or they didn't show enough uh, archives. But I was thinking in comparison with uh, Faces of America, they actually showed quite a few documents and they showed these celebrities going into archives, which I thought was terrific. Right. And even, you know, on our blog, I kind of joked a little bit about, oh, 1849 to 1635 in 15 seconds flat, because you can tell from the show that there were professional genealogists and archivists who did some research behind the scenes and then came back and said, well, here's what we found. But um, obviously they can't show all that on film or, you know, it would be a 10 hour long show and wouldn't be quite as exciting. Exactly. And I think it was apparent when you saw the archive location and you see the expert coming out, obviously somebody did some extra research. And in thinking back to the last time that a TV show really ignited the imagination of the American public about genealogy, that was Roots. And they didn't go to a single archive on the show itself, did they? Right. No, they didn't. And it was neat to see the professional genealogists be involved in the series. Now, one of the things that um, I was you know, thinking about, I know a lot of people have been talking about this, is that we all hope that it's really going to regenerate an interest in family history for the non-historian, the genealogist, everybody involved who's watching the show. And 
I, I know that you guys at Family Tree Magazine have put together some resources, because that's the key, isn't it? As you said, they're telling a story which captures their imagination. What have you put online that's actually going to hand them the tools to start doing their own research? Well, we have a few things, including a one-sheet download that... It has 10 tips for getting started in your genealogy and some great books and websites to go to just to get started, dip your feet in the water, and um, and just start there. So we have a webpage, familytreemagazine.com slash who, that links to our one-page Get Started Cheat Sheet and our blog category that has news on who do you think you are and different research tips and video clips. And then we also have some more celebrity genealogy articles that link to that page, as well as a Twitter feed, so you can see all the latest tweets about who do you think you are. Oh, terrific. Lots of resources there. And that's really the key, isn't it? It's um, giving them some, something to work with. And I would encourage those of you who are listening to the podcast right now and obviously have some experience in family history, tell your friends and family about the show and then direct them to the podcast because this is a terrific free resource as well as then the website resources that Diane's mentioning. Um, now that's at familytreemagazine.com slash who. Is that correct? That's right. And also, I even—I was so lucky I had a chance to talk with Lisa Kudrow, who is stars on the show. She's a producer of the show, and um, she spent about a half an hour of us with us on Genealogy Gems and talked about the process. So there are lots of online resources to not only continue the excitement, but then also to equip the people who watch it who'd like to get more involved. Do you expect you'll be hearing more chatter online about this over the coming weeks as these new episodes come on the air? I definitely think so. It's giving people something to talk about and showing those who aren't already into family history, showing them what's possible. So I definitely expect more and more people to be talking about this. And Diane, again, give us the direct website address to your Genealogy Insider blog, because I know that you're going to be keeping up on this and continuing to blog about it throughout the next coming weeks. Absolutely. It's www.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. Well, how much fun is this to see multiple genealogy-themed shows on television? Um, I think it's a good thing, and as far as I could see, it did pretty well in its initial debut in the ratings, so we'll keep our fingers crossed, right? And we'll keep telling people about it. Wonderful. All right. Thanks so much, Diane. Thank you. Well, as you know, if you've been researching for any time at all and use the census records, um, every census is just a little bit different, and certainly everybody counts. And in the May 2010 issue of Family Tree Magazine, David Frixell has written an article called Everybody Counts, just about the census, and I've asked David to come back on the show and um, cover some tidbits and maybe some unknown tips about the census that you'd be interested in. Hi, David. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I loved your article because as I was going through it, I was picking up all of these things that either you've, you kind of forget about over the uh, different censuses that you're working with or just little tidbits that you realize, oh, that is really interesting that it didn't happen till this point or that point. Let's, let's talk about some of those ways in which the questions on the census have evolved over the years. And of course, we know the census started in 1790, but back in 1820, there was information about citizenship that I didn't realize was on there. Tell us about that. 
Well, it's interesting because this was a very early uh, question to be asked. Uh, usually you think of immigration-type questions as, you know, not getting on the census until the 1900s or something. But in 1820, they'd asked for the number of, quote, foreigners not naturalized uh, as uh, in, the, uh, in the household. And uh, you just don't, you know, expect that as a uh, possible question. Yeah, exactly. It's something to keep an eye out for all the way back in 1820. Of course, unfortunately, they don't. They don't ask for the names of them back in 1820. That's the only, yeah, yeah, the only yeah. uh, you know drawback with the, all those early censuses is that uh, all your ancestors are represented by little tick marks in the uh, you know census columns, other than by uh, actual names. But at least you know how many there were at any one point. And it might give you a clue that their immigration was fairly recent, right? If they were still not naturalized. Right. Now, what was the first year where they actually started using a standardized form? Well, it was actually 1830, so you had several censuses before that. And, you know, again, another thing we sort of take for granted is that ability to, you know, print up forms and that everyone would get this official form. But uh, there was a certain amount of, you know, winging it, um, you know, before then, uh, even though, you know, pretty much the questions were uh, supposedly standardized. But the actual uh, form was uh, in 1830. And then 1840 used the same form uh, for uh, recording the were enumerators just writing up their own forms based on the standardized questions they were given? Pretty, much, I, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure of the how the, some of the forms got printed. I suppose you know some of them may have gotten printed regionally, oh. um, but it, there was no you know di- dictate from Washington that you know here come the forms um, the way that there uh, you know would be today. Exactly. Now, in your article, you call the 1850 census the Hallelujah census. Why is that? Well, because finally, in 1850, they replaced all those tick marks with actual names, uh, that it's the first one where everybody in the household was um, listed uh, by name, and instead of just, uh, there, before 1850, there had been all these ranges of ages, and, and it changed with every census or every other census, you know, uh, between 10 and 16, or 5 and 10, or, you know, you had to, all these sort of things. And finally, in 1850, they actually asked for not only by name, but actually listed the um, actual uh, age as of June 1st of that year, and they actually asked for your birthplace in state or territory. So it's the first census where the sort of things that now we kind of take for granted, uh, you know, actually appeared. So uh, you got beyond just the head of household that you would had for all the censuses before that. Oh, yeah. Huge help to us in our research. And it, you bring up a good point about how those columns changed every decade prior to 1850, you really have to keep an eye on the columns and not assume that they're the same on each one, don't you? Right. Well, and they're, they're just blindingly confusing at times. You don't <laughs> wonder where they came up with these things. You know, in um, 1830 and uh, 1840, uh, they had, you know, under 5, 5 to 10, 10 to 15, and then they went every 15 to 20, and it's the only one, I think, that had over 100 as an, you know, an age category. Right. Um, but, you know, the 1820, for instance, if you had uh, free colored uh, who were enumerated, they were, had like from 10 to 14, 14 to 26, you think, like, where did they come up with these numbers? But, exactly. But uh, uh, they changed every time, and you really have to kind of imagine your ancestors, you know, okay, what age would I think they would have been then? Um, and, of course, you always get uh, errors and uh, exaggerations and everything uh, that you have to uh, take into account. So there is a lot of guesswork um, involved in pretty much all of the census research. 
Now, you mentioned how they categorized the free colored person, and then they had slavery schedules. Um, When did we finally start counting each person as a whole person? Well, in 1870, after the Civil War, because prior to that, uh, as far as congressional representation and so forth, the compromise had been uh, that uh, slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person. Right, right. Um, But with the 14th Amendment in 1868, that was thrown out, and uh, finally all people actually counted as whole people. Wow. Again, you know, sort of things that we, we sort of take for granted, but... It shows, I guess, you know, how far we've come. Exactly, exactly. Now, as we turned into the 20th century, you know, you think of all the questions that we gained, but we actually lost a question in 1910, didn't we? Why is that? Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, you never know exactly what the thinking was behind some of these changes. But, uh, yeah, if you if you could go back and sort of, you know, pick the, the perfect census, the 1900 census was a uh, uh, extremely useful census because, uh, it actually asked not just your age, which is the almost all the other instances say, you know, just what's your age, you write down, you know, 56 or something, but it actually finally asked, duh, for, you know, month and year of birth. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, frustratingly, in 1910, they went back to just asking um, ages. Um, so uh, it, it was really a blow to, uh, you know, future genealogists when they made those changes. Um, in 1900 also had... Uh, they added a question about how many years some uh, you'd been married, so you could kind of calculate backwards to figure out a marriage year. So you know, pretty pretty useful. And it was also the first question that asked specifically for the year a person immigrated to the United States. Um, now the 1890 census had asked how long you'd been in the country, but of course the 1890 census is pretty much gone. Right. So the 1900 census had a really great. Uh, um, question and some of those questions survived, but unfortunately, the month and year one, uh, for probably some bureaucratic reason, in uh, 1910, uh, they replaced that with back to just asking the age. Well, and of course, back you know by 1910, so many of the states were finally getting getting their civil registrations right. Their birth and their death records were being recorded at the county level, so at least we had that to kind of fall back on. Right, right, and you know, as I say, the. The uh, answers to those questions, you, you couldn't always rely on um, anyway. I mean, I, in the article, I talk about that whole question about, uh, you know, year of immigration, which they did keep in 1910. And, you know, my great-grandfather, um, it, it had, I know from one question, census to another, keeps changing his mind as to what year he arrived <laughs> in, the, in the country. In 1910, he says 1880, but uh, uh, in the previous census, he said 1876, which I think is right, but... Uh, you know, even your ancestors or maybe the enumerators were not always, uh, you know, the most accurate uh, question answerers. Oh, maybe he thought he'd just have a little fun with his descendants. Keep you on your toes, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, considering that there are a couple of different sources for census records now online, do you have a favorite, you know, website or source that you use for census collections? I think a lot of it is really just what you're used to. I am most used to using them on, on Ancestry, so I tend to sort of go there as sort of the go-to um, place, but you're right, you know, Footnote has them. Um, they're amazingly more and more now on FamilySearch, particularly on their pilot site, that are available, um, you know, for free now. So that's, yeah. that's terrific. But I think the key is which one is easiest for you to search and to narrow down, because, uh, I mean, I don't know how they did it back when we had to... Uh, 
you know, browse through census records if they weren't, uh, you know, indexed because that's a very time-consuming and, you know, eye-straining process. But if you can, if you have smart searching strategies for finding ancestors, and they can be, you know, elusive, then, uh, you know, that, that's really the, uh, that's really the key. Well, if you want some great tips, some uh, reminders, refreshers on what to look for decade by decade as you go through the U.S. Census, this article, Everybody Counts, is terrific. Um, It's in the May 2010 issue. And as always, David, uh, you've given us lots to think about. Thank you so much for joining us back on the show. Probably familiar with footnote.com, but in today's 101 Best Website segment, in keeping with our census theme today, I've invited Justin Schrofer, Marketing Director at Footnote, to tell us about their newly evolving census collection. Hi, Justin. Hi, Lisa. Great to have you here. I know that many, many of our listeners are, are familiar with footnote.com, and certainly you were right there in the middle of our 101 Best Websites for Genealogy list. Let's just do a quick overview. How many records, how many historical records do you have now on Footnote? Well, we've, we've digitized over 63 million documents um, on the site, and we add about a million, a little over a million every month to the site as well. So we're trying to move as quickly as possible. We know that uh, the family historians and genealogists, that's the key for them is just more and more content. So that's what we're trying to put out there. Exactly. Waiting for that record that we've all been looking for. (laughs) Now, I know that you currently have the 1930 and the 1860 census on your site. And back in October, um, you guys announced that you had a partnership with the National Archives to digitize and create a searchable database for all publicly available U.S. federal censuses. And of course, everybody knows those range from 1790 to the most currently available, which is 1930. Uh, what prompted this project? Yeah, that's a good question. We, you know, when we were putting out the uh, vast amount of records that we had, uh, the, the key for people coming to our site is really to start that path on finding their ancestors and tracing them back. And the census, we kind of viewed as almost like a highway back through, um, you know, U.S. history at least, where the way you can follow that path, the more information that you're able to gain from the census documents could actually lead you off into the other documents and the other collections that we have on our site. So we knew that this was a critical uh, component for people to come to our site to have that success and then to kind of move them along back in time and again, to access the other records that we have. So we kind of view the census, again, as a, as a highway with kind of off-roads or off-ramps to the different collections that people may not have even thought of as they were doing their family history work. So we knew that, you know, the census has been included on other sites and is featured elsewhere, but we knew it was a very good um, structure to access our content. And then we also decided, well, let's let's really make the census um, come to life, and that's where we added some additional functionality to the censuses that are found on our site. I think you described that so well. It really is kind of the superhighway through all the, that connects you with all of the other off-ramps of records, and certainly you guys have had the off-ramps, but, but now you are bringing onto the site that, that highway that kind of connects it all together. Um, and I, I'm excited to talk about the functionality, but first, tell us what is the status of this project? It's a big undertaking, isn't it? Oh, it, there, there's just a massive amount of records. And what we're doing is we're actually um, working with the National Archives. We're digitizing 
the census images again. So we're actually using our own images, and they go through our digitization process. And uh, we also are, cre- are uh, creating our own index off of that as well. So it will be a little bit different than what you might find on other sites since we're doing it um, on our own and, and starting from fresh. And uh, we've already completed the 1930 census and the 1860 census. And we started with those uh, strategically. The 1860 census fits really well with our all of the other Civil War documents that we have on our site. We have probably the most Civil War documents out of any site and the 1860 census was a very good complement. So that's where we started with 1860. And then, of course, 1930 being the most recent um, publicly available census that's out there, we decided to digitize those first. So we have completed both of those. And now we're just working our way backwards. So in the process right now, we have 1920, 1910, and 1900 that we're currently adding more and more content to as we speak, but we still have a, a ways to go with those particular uh, decades, but they tend to be the more heavy decades as well. And as we move further back, those will tend to go a little bit quicker. So you can actually go to footnote.com, and if you type in go.footnote.com slash census, there will be a page there that will show you our census project, and it will allow you to follow any decade that we're currently processing right now. So if any new records tend to be added to the site, then you can receive a notification letting you know the progress and so forth. Yeah, that's really great. Again, we'll have that URL address on the webpage show notes for this episode. It's go.footnote.com slash census. Now, Justin, you kind of tossed in there that there was going to be a little different element to this census. Tell us about what is going to be unique about the census on footnote on footnote really we want to view ourselves as more than just a repository of records where somebody comes to the site they find a record and then they grab it and leave we've created a lot of tools and community and a platform that is meant to pull a lot of these pieces of the puzzle together and so where we're putting certain pieces out as it relates to the records we encourage our our community and visitors to add the pieces that they may know about and the census is a great example of how that all comes together. So, for instance, a census record on our site will be different by each name has almost like a sub-document to it. Rolling over a particular name on a census document will bring up a little box that will include the uh, information that was indexed from that census record. But on that, we also allow for people to um, add any type of comments or stories as it relates to that particular person They're able to upload a photo. Uh, They're also able to just click a box that says, I'm related to this person. Now, what that does is it starts to really create the census image almost, you know, ends up being somewhat like a family tree and adds a lot of value. So the next person that might find that particular ancestor, they not only would find the great census information that's on there, but they could find what other people have been contributing about that, which could provide you know, those doors that we're trying to find that open up to more content or help us to get over those barriers. And the social aspect on our site allows people to get in touch with each other that way. So that in turn brings more of these pieces and more people together in order to really start to look at these people as not just a name on a document, but the stories that they are people and there is a history there, there's photos, there's all sorts of things that really bring these people to life that can bring context and help you 
understand them a little bit better, but also can provide more details to help with research. That interactivity seems like it really fits in well with kind of the whole approach that Footnote has been taking over the years of of not only bringing the records to you, but connecting you to the records and to other people. Um, it seems like it would be a really fascinating element to interacting with those records. Now, if someone listening becomes a member of Footnote, is there a way that they could put in a request for certain records? I mean, obviously, there are just too many to digitize all at one time. Um, is there any method for people to be able to communicate that with you? Absolutely. We, and in fact, you bring up a good point. With our partnership with the National Archives, and we have partnerships with, you know, Allen County Public Library and a few other institutions, Gannett Newspaper, you know, the newspaper uh, publishing company. It's it's like a kid in a candy store. There is so much <laughs> out there, and it really is kind of, uh, you know, a challenge to say, well, okay, what do we focus on next? The the way that we actually prioritize what content we go into is listening to the customers that we have and hearing what they tell us. So by all means, there you know we ask for feedback. There's a link on the bottom of every page on our site that you know is feedback. Tell us what you are looking for. Tell us what you you know content that you would like to see on the site. And the more we hear about that, then it tells us okay, there's a pretty big demand out there. A, a very good example is we've been um, going to genealogy conferences for years, and what we have heard people is when we would go out there. We tell them we have these Civil War documents, and we have the Civil War pension index on our site. And our visitors and our customers would continually tell us, we want the Civil War pension files. I don't, you know, the index is fine, but I want the files online. Well, those records haven't even been microfilmed. But we continue to hear that over and over again. So we actually set up where we have uh, people at the National Archives that are taking the paper documents from the Civil War pension files and digitizing those and those are starting to show up on our site as well. So, again, it's really just please, we love the feedback. We love hearing from our, our visitors and our customers. What is it that you want? You know, we're hearing 18, Word 1812 documents. Those aren't found really anywhere else. So that's, you know, somewhere where we're working with, you know, the National Archives and some other people to see if we can get those documents up there. But we'd love to hear that type of feedback. That's terrific. Well, it's always exciting to hear about that there's always something new around the corner. <laughs> That's one of the wonderful things <laughs> yeah. about genealogy. It never gets old. Um, again, if you would like to visit um, footnote.com, you can go to footnote.com or to learn more specifically about their census project, go to go.footnote.com slash census. And I believe you can also sign up for an email notification, can't you? Absolutely. There's a, a watch button on any of the census pages um, that we have to explain the census that you just barely, you just basically click on that. You'll put in your email address and then you'll receive all those notifications. Wonderful. Hey, Justin, thanks so much for joining us here on the show today. Appreciate it. It was good talking to you, Lisa. Hi, everybody. This is Grace, the online community editor of Family Tree Magazine and the resident preservation expert. If you're just getting started with your family history, finding a family Bible is like winning the genealogical jackpot. But how do you make sure that sacred tome stays in top shape? You'll find out in this biblical edition of Safekeeping. Bibles often contain family dates and names difficult to come by anywhere else. In fact, Bibles are sometimes the only source of vital statistics for ancestors who lived before the advent of official vital records. So it's utterly important to photograph and transcribe all the information in the book. Don't force a fragile Bible open to scan it, though. You can cause a lot of damage to the spine that way.
Instead, rest the open book on a non-slip surface to photograph the pages. Transcribing the information electronically, then, will let you share your findings with all of your relatives. If the Bible's a bit dusty, use a soft cloth to brush dirt off the cover. Hold the book tightly together if you need to dust off the edges, so you then avoid pushing dirt in between the pages. While it's important to remove anything that might cause the Bible harm, like paper clips, metal fasteners, or rubber bands, don't attempt any do-it-yourself bookbinding. If the cover or inside pages are loose, use unbleached cotton tape to loosely tie the book together. You can keep the book in a custom-fit archival box to protect it from the elements. Thou shalt not let water, dust, dirt, nor bugs anywhere near that Bible. Store the archival box flat or fully supported on a shelf. Don't let it slump. That wasn't quite ten commandments, but it should be enough to get you started with a Bible protection plan. Until next time, stay safe. In keeping with our census theme in today's Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Allison and Diane are here again to give us some tips from the online census secrets, best websites and strategies to find your ancestors webinar. Hi, ladies. Welcome back. Hi, Lisa. Hey. Well, I know, um, was it a couple months ago that you guys did the online census secrets webinar and um, had a great turnout for that. And I know that you guys were sharing a lot of terrific tips for um, census records. And since that's our theme, we thought we'd have you back and, and let's talk about some of the things that you shared in that class. What's one of your first tips? Well, the webinar focuses on using different uh, online census collections. So we took a walk through the different sites, including Ancestry.com and Footnote, the Family Search Record Search Pilot site, um, and actually demonstrated those on screen. Um, what was kind of neat about it was we were able to use examples from the participants' research. So um, we actually were able to reunite a few folks with their actual ancestors on the census. So that was pretty neat. Oh, that's great. And so you were taking some real-life examples. What are, what are some of the challenges that people were faced with that you helped them with in terms of the census? I think in some cases people aren't sure where their ancestor is, so they don't know how to figure out whether this is the right person. If you have two people with the same name, pinpointing the right person can be a challenge for people. And some ways that you can figure that out are to look at the family members, um, look at your other research and see where it's logical for your ancestor to have been during that census. Another thing that seemed to trip people up is that, you know, infamous 1850 brick wall, as mm -hmm. people like to call it, um, because that was the first census in which all of the household members were named and the previous censuses just had the heads of household listed. And so uh, trying to figure out which head of household is your ancestor, we did go into some strategies for being able to, for example, look at the same family in 1850 and subtracting 10 years from everyone's ages and then looking for other uh, ancestors in 1840, uh, the households that would match those demographics to be able to figure out if you have a good candidate for the household that is your family. 
I was uh, chatting with David Frixell earlier in the show, and he was calling the 1850 census the Hallelujah census <laughs> because it finally had those names on it. Are there other records that you would use alongside? Because you really do have to have kind of some comparisons to, to figure out who all those little check marks are. Sure. Well, land records and um, tax records are often good tools for doing that because obviously you won't have two people owning the same land. And if, again, they'll often mention other family members besides just the head of household that you can help try and reconstruct who those tick marks on the census are. That is such a good point that, you know, it's very easy to just look at the census and focus on it as a one and only type of record. But really, it's a record in conjunction with other records, right? Sure. Genealogy in general is never just one record alone. It's the process of gathering all of the information that you can find um, in all the records on any given ancestral or ancestral family and putting all those pieces together and figuring out, you know, not every record was right. And not every bit of information um, is accurate. So really, you have to look at the whole picture, not just any one piece of the puzzle. Exactly. Well, we have just a minute or two left. Do you have a final tip for us? I think spellings Mm -hmm. are (laughs) probably the ultimate challenge in censuses. Often there's a transcription error or the census taker didn't write down, you know, what you thought your ancestor's last name should be. So trying alternate spellings, trying just the first name and, you know, perhaps some other information such as a birth date. I've even put the last name in the first name box and search that way to try to just tease out those, um, to broaden your net as far as who you're looking for. And I know that, you know, sites like Ancestry, they actually give you the option to, if you do have information about the correction on a name, that you could add that to the records or to their website so that the next researcher maybe won't have so much trouble, right? You'll be able to help other people, and that becomes part of the Ancestry.com index. Well, certainly, I know the two of you helped a lot of people in that um, online Census Secrets webinar because it was neat. You were using people's real-life challenges and showing how you put these tips into action. If you are interested, even though you may have missed the live webinar, uh, there is a recorded version of it available at shopfamilytree.com. It's just $29.95, and I will have a link directly to that uh, recorded webinar in the show notes. Allison and Diane, great tips. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for joining me for this March 2010 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items until we meet again here next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. Next, go to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything we've covered on today's episode, including links to Shop Family Tree, where you can pick up the May 2010 issue that includes that article by David Frixell called Everybody Counts, and the recording of the Census Secrets webinar taught by Allison and Diane. 
And finally, head over to go.footnote.com slash discover. Right now, for a limited time, you can get free access to their interactive census collection. That's go.footnote.com slash discover. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I do hope that you'll visit me at my website, genealogygems.tv, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems Podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. 